Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and rape. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the last steamy days of the summer of 1960, 28-year-old Henry Bush left an evening showing of Psycho. And he wasn't alone. On his arm was Shirley Payne. Henry and Shirley were a rather odd pairing. At 65, she was more than twice his age. Still, they had enjoyed each other's company for quite some time. The night at the cinema marked their first official date, and it included all the things you might expect a new couple to do. After the movie, Henry invited Shirley back to his apartment to cap off their evening. He'd always been the perfect gentleman in her presence, and that night he was the perfect host. The couple enjoyed some pleasant small talk, sipped some cold beers, began to unwind, and then to undress. Later that night, Shirley kissed her date goodbye and asked when they could meet again. Henry played coy, staring at the older woman curiously. Like the director of a movie, he knew what was coming next. And it had nothing to do with romance. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're delving into the crimes of Henry Bush and the film sometimes blamed for his actions. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. In the first part of this episode, we'll explore Henry's tumultuous childhood years, his time in the military, and the possible influence of the media on his psyche. Later, we'll examine Henry's life as an eyeglass factory worker in Los Angeles and his secret identity as a ruthless killer. We'll also discuss whether his crimes might have been inspired by a certain famous fictional killer, earning him the nickname the Psycho Strangler. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Cinema is a powerful medium. When done well, it depicts nuances of life in a way that paintings and still photography typically can't. Film speaks a universal language that influences how people think and act, for better and for worse. In the post-World War II era, audiences developed a taste for violence in movies. And thanks to new ways of filming, on-screen deaths became more visceral and naturalistic. The more realistic the deaths were, the more tickets sold. But many people worried about what effects it all might have on audiences. Would the violence carry over to real life? Depending on what side of that particular argument you land on, the answer might lie in the life of Henry Bush. While many were terrified after watching Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, Henry was fascinated. He may well have felt a kind of kinship with the offbeat lead, Norman Bates. Both Bates and Henry were of similar age and physical type and both enjoyed complicated relationships with their mothers. Norman Bates famously said, a boy's best friend is his mother. But on the flip side of that coin, Henry never really got to know his own. Details about Henry's childhood are slim, but from what we know, his mother suffered an epileptic seizure during his birth in 1931. 
After that, he was malnourished for the first six weeks of his life, and the consequences of that might have been more than just physical. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please keep in mind that Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we've done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Over a period of decades, a group of researchers ran a study on children who experienced malnourishment and the effects that had as their personality developed throughout their lives. Publishing their findings in the Journal of Childhood Psychiatry, the researchers reported that children who suffered from malnourishment in the first year of life were at risk for higher levels of neuroticism and anxiety, and lower scores of conscientiousness and sociability. In other words, even at the young age of six weeks, Henry was already experiencing the adverse effects of his parents' choices. It's unclear what exactly happened to his birth mother after she left him, or his father for that matter. As for Henry himself, his early years are also something of a mystery. It's possible he spent time in foster care or orphanages, or perhaps he lived with other relatives. What we do know is that eventually he was adopted by his half-sister, Mae Bush, and went to live with her family in Los Angeles. For the most part, May and her husband Henry gave him a fairly stable home environment. They lived in the middle of Hollywood and owned a popular restaurant. But May wasn't particularly affectionate towards her adopted son. So although he had a solid living situation at last, Henry still lacked a figure in his life to give him a maternal kind of love. Adding to his growing list of issues, Henry's physical appearance was a little odd. As a result, he was teased a lot at school, where his peers called him mousy. He also suffered from terrible migraines, which made it difficult for him to concentrate on his classes. So, with no friends to speak of, nothing in the way of strong parental bonds, and absent any supportive academic outlet, Henry turned to a family friend for comfort, Mrs. Elmira Miller. We don't know too much about their relationship, but we do know that the two were close, and she became a pseudo-mother figure for young Henry. Her influence might have been what allowed him to reach young adulthood without getting into any trouble. From what we know, Henry's adolescence was rather unremarkable. He didn't seem to get into trouble, and he certainly wasn't arrested. But things took a turn in 1952, when he joined the military during the Korean conflict. It's unclear what exactly drew the 20-year-old to military service. He was likely a rather shy and withdrawn child, as is often the case with those who are the targets of bullying and he might have been just as quiet as an adult. But it's very possible that in the army, Henry decided to overcompensate in a very bloody way. At one point, he was serving at a prison of war stockade just outside of Incheon, Korea. The US military had captured an injured Chinese soldier and placed Henry in charge of the prisoner. He was only supposed to watch him. But for Henry, this was a chance to finally exert power over someone more vulnerable than he. While watching the prisoner limp around on his injured leg, Henry got a sudden urge to do something violent. He took his bayonet and stabbed the defenseless man, killing him. It was his first murder and his first time getting away with it. Despite the fresh stab wound, Henry's superiors believed the prisoner had succumbed to his war injuries and didn't implicate Henry in the death. Though he was eventually discharged for other unspecified conduct, nobody ever knew that he had killed a prisoner of war right under their noses. But though he escaped external consequences, the act did stick with him psychologically. After killing the soldier, he apparently started hearing radio static that wasn't really there, and the noise put him in a strange, trance-like state. 
It's possible this was a symptom of tinnitus, a condition in which someone experiences ringing noises in one or both their ears. In military veterans, tinnitus can be due to brain damage from proximity to an explosion. And according to a 2008 study in the American Journal of Audiology, it often goes hand in hand with post-traumatic stress disorder. To be clear, Henry was never diagnosed with PTSD, but it seems the strange phantom noise stayed with him for years. It followed him home from the war and was there when sometime in the late 50s, he moved back to his hometown, Los Angeles. At the time, LA was home to movie stars like Marilyn Monroe and Montgomery Clift. Henry's own life, though, was anything but glamorous. Far removed from the trauma and excitement of war, Henry found low-stakes work in an eyeglass factory where he polished lenses. Again, we don't know too much about what Henry was up to during this period. We do know, however, that he developed a special interest in a certain high-profile criminal, a serial rapist, Carol Chessman. At the time, Chessman was sitting on death row at San Quentin Penitentiary for multiple counts of rape and assault. But he appealed his case several times and staved off execution, sometimes at the last minute. As news of Carol's case flooded the press, Henry grew obsessed. He followed every detail and, according to his adoptive mother, sympathized with Carol. Henry even expressed beliefs that Carol was innocent. It's hard to say why he was so fascinated, but it's entirely possible that Henry admired the serial rapist who had dismissed his own lawyers and opted to represent himself. He might have seen Carol as a victim, someone who stood up to his bullies. Only instead of school kids taunting him, Carol's tormentor was the criminal justice system. But it's also possible that Henry admired Carol Chessman for his ill-gotten fame and notoriety. Given his proximity to Hollywood and the film industry, this might have been something Henry himself wanted. And Carol had shown him how to get it. And so, seemingly fueled by some dark inspiration, Henry decided to pay a visit to his lone childhood friend, Mrs. Elmira Miller. When he knocked on her door, he had stars in his eyes and murder in his heart. Coming up, a warm homecoming gives way to shocking violence. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem. This podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. On the 1st of May, 1960, 28-year-old Henry Bush dropped by an old family friend's apartment. 74-year-old Elmira Miller had known Henry since he was a small boy. She'd been a tender, motherly figure to him when his adopted mother hadn't given him the affection he craved. So she was likely pleasantly surprised to see Henry at her doorstep and invited him inside to sit a while with her. 
It's not entirely clear what Henry's true intentions were, at least when he arrived, because at first, the night seemed entirely normal. He went inside and sat on Elmira's sofa with her, and the two had a pleasant conversation. Then they spent some time watching TV together. But while they were sitting on the couch, things took a turn. Henry started thinking about killing Elmira, and the radio static in his head drowned out any other noise. While he might initially have tried to resist the thought, this became harder over time, and the static only grew louder. As they wrapped up their evening, Elmira stood, maybe getting ready to walk Henry to the door, but he wasn't ready to go. When he saw that her back was turned, he seized his opportunity. He pounced on the older woman and wrapped his arm around her neck, closing off her windpipe. Even if Elmira put up a fight, she was no match for Henry, and he strangled her to death. If Henry felt any regret in the moments after his second murder, he certainly didn't indulge the feeling for long. Instead, he focused his energy on covering up what he'd done. At the time, crime had been rising steadily in Los Angeles. Henry decided the best way to keep the authorities off his trail was to stage Elmira's body as if she'd been the victim of a random, brutal sexual assault. So he tore open her housecoat, ripped her undergarments, then he left her body on the floor. Before he left, he might have checked the windows to make sure no one would see him leave. Finally, he locked the front door, then slipped out through the back and went home probably wondering how long it would take for someone to notice his lifelong friend was dead. He didn't have to wait long. The next day, Elmira's body was found during a routine medical house call. There she was, sprawled out on the living room floor, her neck covered in purplish-red abrasions. Authorities and detectives weren't entirely surprised by the crime. There'd been a slew of other rape murders in West Los Angeles recently, and older women had been the most common targets. Although it might feel somehow more monstrous to attack someone as seemingly frail as an elderly woman, there's a logical explanation for why such attacks are common. According to academic researchers Professors Myrna Dawson and Janice Joseph, women tend to live longer than men, which makes them more likely to live alone. In turn, that leaves them more susceptible to exploitation and violent attacks. This might have been part of why Henry chose Elmira as his first victim. As far as we know, she was living alone and didn't have much other family to speak of. It was an easy murder for Henry to carry out and then get away with, not that he was keen to take any chances with his secret. That summer, Henry laid low. He continued his work at the eyeglass factory where he got close with his coworker, Magdalena Parra. The two occasionally had coffee together before work. But by the end of August, Henry was apparently feeling lonely again and desiring more company. Like he once had with Elmira Miller, he sought it in a place close to home, his mother's apartment building. There, he met 65-year-old Shirley Payne, another tenant in the building. It's unclear exactly what Henry and Shirley's relationship was prior to the start of the summer, or how long they'd known each other. But over the Labor Day weekend, Henry decided to ask her on a date. A new hot movie had come out, and everyone was talking about it, so he invited her to a screening of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. For those not familiar with the story, the film begins by following a young woman, Marion Crane, who goes on the run after stealing some money from her employer. In the middle of a downpour, she stops at the fictional Bates Motel, where she meets the shy proprietor, Norman Bates, and learns about his tumultuous relationship with his mother. 
In a now infamous scene, a shadowy figure stabs Marion to death while she's in the shower. As the film goes on, we learn that Norman was the culprit and that he assumes the persona of the mother he killed in order to murder women he imagines might make her jealous. As Henry watched this dark story unfold on the screen, it's possible it had a big impact on his subconscious. Movies can have a profound effect on the human psyche, as well as on social interactions. This is particularly true of the way that men interact with women who are objects of misogyny on the silver screen. In a 2019 paper, University of San Diego student Sarah Hankins studied the effects the male gaze in horror and thriller films had on the so-called fairer sex. Celebrated filmmakers such as Hitchcock have been critiqued for their objectification, victimization, and physical, often sexual, violence of women in a man's world. Hankins also found that on-screen violence perpetrated against women had a profound effect on how they're viewed off-screen. That is, men who watch films with abused female characters would be more likely to excuse abusive behavior in real life and might even be attracted to it. And while this doesn't mean that anyone watching Psycho would be inspired to murder women, Henry had already been influenced by a different real-life killer. With that in mind, it seems that he was already in a position to empathize with and even idolize violent men, especially if he identified with them. In the film, Norman Bates killed his mother because he was jealous of her lover and the attention she didn't give him. Henry might have nursed a similar lingering resentment towards his own mother, who apparently chose not to raise him. At least, that's likely how Henry felt. Whatever was going on in his head as the story unfolded before him, after the movie, Henry continued on with his date as if it were a normal evening. He brought Shirley to his apartment and together they downed a few beers. From what we know, he made sure she got nice and comfortable, just as Norman did for Marion Crane when she checked into the Bates Motel. At some stage, the two had sex. At this point, it seems it was consensual, but as Shirley was getting ready to leave the apartment, the static turned on in Henry's head as if with the flick of a switch. The noise was the loudest it had ever been. It was all he could hear. And in his experience, there was only one thing he could do to silence it. He wrapped his fingers around Shirley's neck and squeezed, strangling her. But then, instead of killing her right away, he got another idea. Henry tied Shirley up and laid her on the ground. Then he got out a sketchbook and started drawing a picture of Shirley. It was an odd thing to do in the middle of a murder attempt, but it might be that Henry knew this was a moment he'd want to remember. So he took the time to create a trophy. We talk about the idea of a serial killer's trophies fairly often on this show, and for good reason. There are a myriad of ways the concept can manifest, allowing room for different ways of thinking about them. In 1998, criminology and law professor James Allen Fox and sociology professor Jack Levin wrote about the idea of serial killer trophies for crime and justice. They explained it like this. For a man who has otherwise led an unremarkable life, his treasures make him feel proud. They represent the one and only way in which he may have ever distinguished himself. More important, these souvenirs can become tangible reminders of the good times spent with his victims. Aided by the various items taken from a crime scene, he can still get pleasure between crimes by reminiscing, fantasizing, and masturbating. 
In drawing Shirley's portrait, Henry might have been trying to distinguish himself, to share a memory with his latest victim. However, once he was finished with his drawing, it was time to complete his plan. He moved forward and wrapped his arms around Shirley's neck. He squeezed her in the headlock for several minutes, strangling her to death. With Shirley dead at his feet, the radio static in Henry's mind likely subsided, and he began to calm down. But that was only one issue taken care of. There was still the matter of what to do with the body. He probably knew it would be risky to try and stage the scene as another rape, but he didn't seem to have any other ideas about how to handle the problem. Instead of dealing with the mess he'd created for himself, Henry wrapped Shirley in a sheet and went to sleep. The next morning, he went out and bought a sleeping bag, stuffed Shirley's body inside, and tied the macabre parcel up with a rope, in a similar manner to the way he tied her for her portrait. Henry didn't leave the apartment again until later that evening. It's unclear what he was doing inside for all those hours, whether he was trying to think of a way to get rid of Shirley's body, or whether he was simply going about his day. Whatever he did, he eventually decided to head out, leaving his latest victim's body behind to decompose. That same day, the night of September 5th, he paid a visit to his aunt. Like Elmira, 53-year-old Margaret Briggs was an older woman who'd been a constant figure in Henry's life. In other words, she was another surrogate mother for the young man. No matter what their relationship was, Henry went to Margaret's house with very clear intentions, made obvious by the fact that he brought manacles and a knife with him. In contrast to his earlier attacks, which might have been explained away as impulsive attacks, he sought out Margaret with sinister intent. Of course, Margaret didn't know that. So when Henry appeared on her doorstep, she invited him inside with open arms. Just like with Elmira, the two settled down in the living room to catch up on their lives while flipping through TV channels. Lulled into a familiar sense of security, he contemplated telling Margaret about what he'd done, how he had murdered Shirley. But the moment was almost over before it began. Henry shook off the impulse and returned to his plan. Why Henry ignored his desire to confess is an interesting question, and one that's hard to answer. But perhaps he simply reacted badly to the unwanted attack of conscience. At a time when he might have needed it most, Margaret showed him love and comfort. But instead of accepting it, this might have triggered Henry more. In an article about the mind of serial killers, associate professor John Parrington suggests that fear of rejection can be their underlying motivation. This often stems from being badly mistreated or neglected by a parent. Rather than risk history repeating itself, Parrington argues that they'd rather eliminate the possibility, or more specifically, the person who might reject them. So Henry decided not to tell Margaret about what he had done, and instead kept the secret buried. And as soon as he made up his mind, the urge to kill came back with a vengeance. It was time to finish what he'd come here to do. Coming up, an attack doesn't go quite as planned. Now, back to the story. On the night of September 5th, 1960, 28-year-old Henry Bush was in his Aunt Margaret's apartment, experiencing a familiar desire to kill. Almost by rote, he locked his forearm across his aunt's neck. Yet Margaret did something Henry probably wasn't expecting. She fought back, hard. The 53-year-old flung her body from side to side, pulling Henry so forcefully that they knocked over furniture. 
But although Margaret put up a fight, she was no match for her nephew. Moments after Henry wrestled her to the ground, Margaret lost consciousness, and then she finally stopped breathing. Still reeling from the unexpected tussle, Henry wasted no time moving on to the next step in his plan. He grabbed his knife and sliced through Margaret's clothes and cut through her breast in the process. It's unclear whether this was intentional or not. It was simply a slip of the knife. As far as we can tell, he was only trying to make it look like she'd been attacked by a sexual predator, as he had with Elmira Miller. After that, he spent the night in the apartment with Margaret's body, likely because he didn't want to wake her neighbors by leaving in the wee hours of the morning. Yet once the sun started peeking through her curtains, illuminating her body, Henry knew it was time to leave. He readied himself for the day and grabbed Margaret's purse and car keys. Then he left his aunt's mutilated body on the living room floor, drove away from the building, and headed to work. Meanwhile, the LAPD linked Elmira's murder to a string of other disturbing murder rapes throughout the city, just as Henry intended. But investigators had few leads to follow that might help them solve the case. The one thing they did have, however, was a description of the man who matched Henry's appearance. We're not exactly sure how they got this information, but they knew Elmira's assailant stood about six feet tall, weighed in at around 150 pounds, and was close to 30 years old. Meanwhile, that man drove to work where he met up with his friend and co-worker Magdalena Parra. Henry was likely on edge that morning. He'd just killed two women in the span of just a couple of days, and it seems he still had the urge to kill more. But as far as we know, Magdalena didn't notice any difference in her friend, so they decided to go on their usual jaunt to a local cafe to grab a cup of coffee before they clocked in for the day. Only this time, their regular spot was closed, so Henry suggested they try another coffee house, not too far from where they worked. Thinking nothing of it, Magdalena accepted his offer and got into the passenger seat of Henry's car. But Henry didn't start the engine. Instead, he lunged at Magdalena's throat as soon as she closed the door, attempting to strangle her. But just like with Aunt Margaret, things didn't go quite as Henry planned. Magdalena screamed and fought back fiercely. Thankfully, the car was unlocked, so she opened the door, scrambled out of her seat, and took off running as fast as she could. Henry tried to start his car, intending to go after her, but instead, he flooded the engine. Refusing to let her get away so easily, Henry abandoned the vehicle and raced after Magdalena on foot. By then, she was already a good distance down the road, so he had to run fast. However, the chase attracted the attention of a couple of truck drivers on the same road. They saw a woman running, screaming for her life, and a man pursuing her. It was clear to them what they needed to do. The men pulled over and joined the pursuit. Once they caught up to him, they physically restrained Henry, allowing Magdalena to get away. Then they just waited for the authorities to arrive. Soon after, the LAPD showed up to arrest Henry. Of course, they had no idea he was a serial killer. At this point, all they would have known was what Magdalena Parra told them, that her friend had attacked her in his car. Based on that account, Henry Bush might be nothing more than a would-be sexual predator. But they might have reassessed him when they found a knife and a pair of handcuffs on him. Suddenly, the weedy young man seemed even more sinister than anyone might have imagined. 
Henry himself demonstrated that in short order. On the way to the police station, he willingly confessed to his previous crimes without any prompting. Specifically, he said, I might as well tell you I killed some women. Sometimes I have a very strong urge to kill. Needless to say, the investigators were left stunned by the revelation. It's not exactly clear why Henry confessed. From newspaper articles detailing the incident, it seems the 28-year-old was smiling as he did, which suggests that he didn't confess out of fear or pressure. Instead, he might have actually wanted to tell police what he'd done. It's almost as if he was proud of it. Studies on truthful serial killer confessions are rare, as they don't happen often, but it's possible that part of Henry's motivation for both his murders and subsequent confessions was a desire for fame. In a paper on the creation of, quote, cultural monsters, researcher Julie Wiest writes that some killers may consider serial murder a path to fame, giving them a sense of domination and immortality. With that in mind, we could interpret Henry's actions as those of a man who wanted to be remembered forever, like a character in a film. In his confession, Henry even went so far as to announce that there was a body in his apartment and another one in the building his foster mother lived in. By this stage, he had no intention of hiding anything he'd done. Not anymore. After that, it was time to face the consequences of his actions. In the fall of 1960, the state of California charged Henry Bush for murder and assault with the intent to commit murder. With a bona fide confession and plenty of physical evidence tying him to the crimes, it should have been an easy case to win. However, Henry's lawyers were determined to put up a fight. First, they had him diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder. Then, they tried to push the narrative that motion pictures were to blame for the murders, not the killer himself. The defense brought in an expert in forensic hypnosis, a technique used to try to get a complete picture of a witness's state of mind. In other words, their job was to separate the facts from a witness's emotions. But in this case, the idea was to argue a very specific story about Henry Bush, that the film Psycho had induced in him an accidental trance state. Essentially, the argument was that the film worked as a form of mind control, and this caused Henry to attack his victims. Thankfully, the jury didn't buy the far-fetched idea. Apart from anything else, there was the glaring issue that Henry had attacked his first victim before the film was even released. And so, in 1961, Henry Bush was convicted of murder. The following year, he was sent to the gas chamber at San Quentin State Prison. He was 30 years old. In the 60 years since his death, Henry Bush remains a footnote on the legacy of Psycho, arguably Alfred Hitchcock's greatest film. Despite the outcome of his trial, his case did raise an interesting question. Should the film bear any responsibility for Henry's actions? Should storytellers in any medium? According to the celebrated master of suspense himself, no. When asked about Henry's case, Hitchcock said, the movie itself couldn't cause a person to kill any more than any other film where you see people killing each other. They see it on westerns every night. And Henry himself dismissed any connection to the classic. He always insisted that he didn't know why he killed his victims. And although we can try our best to puzzle that out, all we can really do is guess.
Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Stay safe out there. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Nick Johnson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Khalid Ridgway. Edited by Stacey Nemec and Joel Callen. Fact-checked by Mary Mathis. Researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. And produced by Bruce Kotovich. Serial Killer stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 